The problem with the standard view is that the language used for the standard orthodox view is sort of inconsistent. It's not clear what one is talking about. Maybe this quote from Einstein would be useful. He's really, I think, right on target here. Here's what Einstein said. He says, I too have many reasons to believe that the present quantum theory, the standard theory, in spite of its many successes, is far from the truth. This theory reminds me a little of the system of delusion of an exceedingly intelligent paranoiac concocted of incoherent elements of thought. That was something Einstein said in 1952. It's, when you're talking about the orthodox theory, it's really not at all clear what you're talking about. It's really not what that, clear what that theory says as a physical theory. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, A Big Number, 170. It's a huge number. And this episode is with Sheldon Goldstein and Pins the Podcat. Pins is a cat, and Sheldon Goldstein is Distinguished Professor of Mathematics at Rutgers University, where he researches mathematical physics, the foundations of quantum mechanics, and Bohmian mechanics. And he's also a board member of the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics, which you geeselings, if I might call you that, should be familiar with by this point. And it was founded by fellow Robinson's podcast, Denison, uh, my friend, Tim Maudlin. And in this episode, continuing our survey of some assorted topics in physics, Shelley and I talk about Bohmian mechanics and pilot wave theory. And since, if I recall correctly, though I should really know this with more certainty. Uh, we don't define some key ideas and concepts until later on in the episode, if at all. So I should just say that, I mean, for many of you, this is old hat, that quantum mechanics, it's the study of physics at the atomic scale. And there are a lot of conceptual confusions and difficulties and mysteries about what's happening down there or in there. Uh, or out there, I suppose, depending on your perspective, and how to make sense of some very unintuitive findings relating to the behavior of these small objects, where in some cases they behave like waves, and some cases like particles. And Bohmian mechanics is just one of many quantum theories or interpretations, as they're also sometimes called, that purport to account for some of these findings. And Bohmian mechanics is a development of pilot wave theory, which was first described by Louis de Broglie, in which particles like photons are particles, but their wave-like nature comes from the fact that they are, are guided by waves. And one key aspect of this theory is that it's deterministic. So there is none of the fundamental irreducible randomness that's often associated with quantum mechanics. And two other related ideas that I should mention now are locality and non-local hidden variables. And locality is the idea that for two things to be causally connected, some information must be passed between them 
and the speed limit for this information exchange is the speed of light. Quantum mechanics, however, is generally thought to be irreducibly non-local. There are still some people who don't believe that. And then there are a lot of historical figures who certainly don't. And Einstein, for instance, is one of them. And he, he believed that the oft-quoted spooky action at a distance was impossible. And so he argued for local hidden variables. Uh, this was sort of the, the notion that quantum mechanics was an incomplete theory and that these hidden variables were aspects of the theory aspects not contained in the theory um, that obeyed the principle of locality that would resolve these problems and would eventually be discovered. And so they would complete it and do away with the spooky action exemplified by spooky action at a distance exemplified by phenomena like entanglement. But then John Stuart Bell uh, entered the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics, ruled out these local hidden variables, but he was an advocate for non-local hidden variable theories, such as, and this is where our topic enters back in, Bohmian mechanics. So Shelley and I discuss the origins of pilot wave theory, its chief theoretical innovations, its relationship to philosophy, and then some of the main objections to these, these, um, these waves are very spooky to some people st still, and strengths of, such as determinism, uh, the theory. And you might be interested in checking out Shelley's book on the subject, Bohmian Mechanics and Quantum Theory and Appraisal. There's a, a link in the description. And if you're interested in the foundations of, of physics or quantum mechanics, which as you know, I, I, I think you should be. It's okay if you're not, but you probably should be. Then check out the JBI, which is hell-bent on providing a home for research and education in this important area. Any donations are immensely helpful, and there will be a link in the description. So without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Shelley. Before we get to pilot wave theory, I'd like to start with quantum mechanics more generally. And I saw that you once studied with none other than the renowned philosopher Saul Kripke, who I don't think is a name often associated with quantum mechanics, or at least I've never heard his name invoked in a discussion of the field. But I saw that he seriously influenced the trajectory of your research. And I was wondering what the story was there. Well, it just happened. Uh, I think it was around, I'm not sure, 1974, perhaps, Princeton. And he was going to give a seminar on Wittgenstein following a rule or something like that. But before his first lecture, he heard that some philosophers, maybe it was Michael Dummett, some philosophers were, was one of them, some philosophers were taking seriously quantum logic, Hillary Putnam for sure, and he was pretty upset about that, and so he switched um, 
the subject of the course to quantum logic. He said next time he gives a course, it'll be, he'll call it really Wittgenstein. So that was, that was a really great course. Hmm. Oh, but it, it didn't intersect with quantum mechanics or it did? No, no, it, it was, you know, it was about quantum logic. And about it, how, in the, how, sort of elaborating on his view that quantum logic is complete nonsense. Mm. But then, how did this influence your research in physics? Well, I'm not. It's hard for me to say how it. I think it had a big impact, but it's hard for me to be clear about that. Let's say it was like this. It was kind of refreshing to hear somebody speak in such candid terms about how very smart people could be saying really silly things. Okay. That, that was, I think, quite relevant for me. Hmm. It's yeah, well, that I can't be. Trouble. I had trouble with, with that idea. I, I assumed that all my professors, really smart people, we're not would not be saying silly things. So if they said things I didn't really understand, it was must be my fault. It took me a while to realize, and this course helped a lot, that it wasn't always my fault. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a an important lesson to learn. I can see why it would have been so influential. I mean, as as children and. I take it that you, I mean, you weren't a child when you took this class, but you were still a student. We have this idea that adults, especially the ones who seem to have their shit together, are infallible in a sense. So it's it's uh, it's nice to learn that they're not always right because then that, that leaves room for you to, uh, when you're reading their work or studying their work, look for mistakes that you otherwise, otherwise might not have been attuned to. Right. And it's just not, not just any adults, but some of the leading authorities on physics or the are on philosophy of physics, that they could be saying silly things was something at the time I simply couldn't, couldn't imagine could be the case until this course helped me in that regard. Now, without the course, would I have come to the same conclusion? Well, maybe so. Who can say? It was a very amusing course. Yeah, I hear he was a. I never had the chance to meet him, but I hear that he was quite the character in many ways. I mean, one story I heard was that as brilliant as he was, he couldn't operate a coin laundry machine. Sounds like him, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. But maybe, maybe this will connect with where I wanted to go next. Just another sort of background question before we get into some of the history of Bohmian mechanics and pilot wave theory. But how was it that you and Detlef Dürer and Nino Zangi got working on Bohmian mechanics in the first place? Well, Detlef, I think it was 1978, came to Rutgers, the math department at Rutgers, as a postdoc, not to work with me, but he ended up working with me and Joel Leibowitz about on issues in statistical mechanics. Um, nothing to do with quantum mechanics at the time, but we, you know, we we became close collaborators. 
And Nino Zange did, did not get involved with us for several more years. Um, now, so, you know, I was, as, a, as a close collaborator, I would have discussions with Detlef about various things, and I was always interested in understanding quantum mechanics better. And as it turns out, I think Detlef was too. And so at some point, we began to talk about quantum mechanics and realized we had a common interest there. So that, I guess, got us started. Um, Detlef met Nino Zange, I guess, early 1980s. Um, and they were working on some things connected with quantum mechanics. And we sort of joined forces around 1986 or so, if I can remember correctly. We all, now Nino, as a graduate student, worked on foundations of quantum mechanics. Detlef and I did not. We only started working on it basically later in our, somewhat later in our careers. I recently had a very nice uh, conversation with David Albert. I think it was his his fifth time on the show. And we talked quite broadly about the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. And one thing that I took out of the conversation was that over the past, let's say, 100 years, uh, quite broadly, philosophically speaking, the metaphysics of quantum mechanics has taken two leaps. So the first one was, as David described it, sort of putting to bed the Copenhagen interpretation that was kind of the end of metaphysics of quantum mechanics. And he described working on this with people like Nino Zengi and you and Barry Lower and, and Tim Maudlin and all of these people. But then once the door was opened for further speculation, on the metaphysics of quantum mechanics from a philosophical or, or physical perspective, you all found that you had very differing intuitions, even though you had been totally united against the Copenhagen interpretation. And so what I'm wondering is why it was that around this time, the three of you became particularly interested in Bohmian mechanics, as opposed to say, uh, many worlds or some other interpretation. Well, in my case, um, my first, I'm not, by the way, I'm not sure David was right about the end of Copenhagen. It's probably still the dominant view. I'm not, maybe it's not the dominant view among philosophers of physics, but I'm sure there's still quite a few philosophers of physics who are. I think that was more of his his take not that it's the end for physicists but within philosophy there's much more room for taking the other interpretations there is much more, more room why well, I, I would say it still might be the dominant view in philosophy i'm not sure have you done a poll no i i haven't done a poll i'm curious but certainly there's room for alternatives but many more alternatives to the orthodox view of quantum mechanics are much well, much better accepted in philosophy than in physics. Um, my first departure from Copenhagen 
probably was a was when I became for a short time a proponent of many worlds. Maybe that lasted a, a year or two. That was around 1980. Um, but then I learned about something called stochastic mechanics, which is a theory associated with late great the mathematician Ed Nelson. Mm-hmm. He's come and up on the show many times. That opened my eyes. So that was a version of quantum mechanics where, where you're dealing with particles, but they're undergoing not a deterministic process, but a, a novel sort of diffusion process. And um, I, I got interested in that theory. And... Um, thought about how that theory worked, tried to understand how it was consistent, or the sense in which it was consistent with quantum mechanics. Anyway, it was eye-opening. And I must have talked to Detlef and Nino about that theory when I, when I uh, finally understood it. Um, it was only, let's say, five or so years later, 85, 86, maybe even 87, I'm not sure, that I realized that the randomness involved on an intrinsic level in stochastic mechanics, the basic evolution equation for the particles in stochastic mechanics is a diffusion process, intrinsic randomness, in other words. That was unnecessary. Um... And when I realized, yeah, that was unnecessary, I realized, oh, that deterministic version must have been what Bohm had in his 51 paper, and it was. And it took me maybe a few more years to completely abandon stochastic mechanics in terms of what we now call Bohmian mechanics, since the randomness really wasn't playing any role and just gave a misleading impression of what was required to understand quantum randomness. So from about, let's say, 1988 on, I was pretty, pretty firm, firmly committed to Bohmian mechanics. Before we get to some of the philosophical or real physical issues, I, I think it would be nice to start with the history. And even though I haven't mentioned this name yet, I understand that Louis de Broglie was something of a character, and he discovered pilot wave theory before Bohm did. So just who was he and what was the state of quantum mechanics in the 1920s that led to his development of the theory? Well, the Broly had the, um, around 1923, had the idea that just as, as Einstein proposed, proposed in 1905, electromagnetic waves are associated with particles, photons, Rowley proposed that what we think of as particles, electrons, should be associated with waves. And he explored a little bit about what the waves would be like. Of course, Schrodinger explored what the waves would be like in more detail after de Broglie's ideas were recommended to Schrodinger by Einstein. Most people ignored de Broglie's ideas in 23, but Einstein was impressed by them, recommended them to Schrodinger, 
Schrodinger gave a lecture, I think, in 1925. Maybe it was in Zurich. I'm not sure. I don't remember now. And this was a lecture where Schrodinger was exploring what these de Broglie waves would have to be like. And at the end of the lecture, Peter Debye, the physicist Peter Debye, commented to Schrodinger that said something like, Hey, Schrodinger, what you're doing is silly. If you want to know what these waves are like, why don't you look for the wave equation? And Schrodinger instantly recognized the merit of that suggestion and proceeded to find the wave equation, Schrodinger's equation. Um, it's not that hard to find once you look. Um, de Broglie returns in 1927 to propose something which he perhaps didn't totally have his heart in, but something which was nonetheless the pilot wave theory. He had this idea of some theory of the double solution, which was a more elaborate thing, which as far as I know, has never been able, nobody's ever been able to work it out, see how it should work. Anyway, it's not quantum mechanics. It's not, see, it's, his theory of the double solution is not clear what predictions it would make. It's not even clear what the theory is. At least it's not clear to me. But he did propose the pilot wave theory in 1927. I think the full theory, pretty much. Though he didn't really understand how it worked. Objections were raised at the Solvay Conference in 1927, and he quickly abandoned the theory. Einstein, at the same time, in the same year, even before, early 1927 perhaps, also had proposed a pilot wave theory. Not the Broly's version. Einstein's version was a bit was sort of more complicated and much more non-local than the Broly's version. In any case, Einstein, I guess he recognized the non-locality of his theory and he gave up on it. And he probably, when the Broly didn't respond well to questions at the Solvay conference, probably gave up on the Broly's proposal as well. Maybe it was clear to Einstein that it was non-local too. And, you know, Einstein would not have, would not have been expected to like anything non-local, anything with action at a distance, since the, ostensibly special relativity is based on the idea that there is no action at a distance. So, the Broly's ideas were abandoned until they were rediscovered by Bohm in 1952. Before we move on to Bohm, uh, maybe I should, and before we continue in general, I think I ought to ask for our listeners for whom this is their first time even hearing the phrase pilot wave theory, just what it is. I mean, maybe we could make sense of it with reference to an experiment or, or a thought experiment. Well, let me ask you this question. This might help your listeners too. What, I'm not particularly attracted to the name pilot wave theory. But I'll, what, in your view, is the essential innovation of Bohmian mechanics? Hmm. That one, well, if, I just have to give one, one thing. Yeah, just one thing, the essential innovation. Okay. 
that there is a separate wave and a separate particle and the wave guides the particle. Good. That's certainly an innovation. Now, here's what I would quibble with in that. The essential idea here is not so much that there are particles, but that the wave function is not everything. That you need a more appropriate physical ontology than just wave function. So, Bohmian mechanics is the realization of that for non-relativistic quantum mechanics, where the obvious ontology does the job. If you're talking about a non-relativistic system of quantum particles, the essential input of Bohmian mechanics is that particles means particles. Once you actually believe that, you, you can easily write down the equations of Bohmian mechanics. So for Bohmian mechanics for non-relativistic particles, quantum particles, non-relativistic quantum mechanics, Bohmian mechanics really, given Schrodinger's equation, which everybody knew was part of the story at the time, if not the whole story, Given Schrodinger's equation, Bohmian mechanics is simply the obvious ontology, particles described by their positions, evolving in the obvious way, according to the pilot wave guiding equation. An equation which you could ask an intelligent high school student to simply um, guess if they know Schrodinger's equation, sort of the obvious guess. So Bohmian mechanics is kind of an obvious theory. As soon as you say the obvious thing, namely you're talking about particles, things with positions. I suppose though, I think it, well, I think it would still be useful maybe to explain how this view contrasts with, I mean, the more standard quantum mechanical formalism or the way of looking at like a, an, a photon passing through a slit or something like that. Well, you see, when you say photon passing through a slit, it sounds as if you're talking about the photon as if it were a particle. Mm -hmm. That's almost talking about it in Bohmian terms. The problem with the standard view is that Pete, the language used for the standard orthodox view is sort of inconsistent. It's not clear what one is talking about. Maybe this quote from Einstein would be useful. He's really, I think, right on target here. Here's what Einstein said. He says, I too have many reasons to believe that the present quantum theory, the standard theory, in spite of its many successes, is far from the truth. This theory reminds me a little of the system of delusion of an exceedingly intelligent paranoiac concocted of incoherent elements of thought. That was something Einstein said in 1952. It's, when you're talking about the orthodox theory, it's really not at all clear what you're talking about. It's really not what that, clear what that theory says as a physical theory. But if you want to draw a contrast with Bohmian mechanics, I would say and one has to be careful because you're contrasting Bohmian mechanics with something which is kind of obscure. 
So any kind of contrast between the obscure and the clear is going to be itself a bit muddied because of that. Um, it, but the standard view is that if you have a system in quantum mechanics, is completely described by its wave function. So if a, in a hydrogen atom with a spread out wave function for the electron, the standard view is the electron does not have a position. It just has a wave function. No position. Now, the standard view goes on to say, yes, but if you look for this position, you measure the position, you find the position, and there are various rules for the probability distribution of the position that you'll find. But again, that what I've just said is incoherent, because if the particle doesn't have a position, it makes no sense to find it. You can't find something that isn't there. But you learn to play this kind of incoherent linguistic form of communication. Difficult for, it's why it's difficult for many mathematicians. Quantum mechanics is difficult for many mathematicians because, you know, it's just such an inconsistent way of speaking, so unclear. So one thing Bohmian mechanics brings to the subject is crystal clarity. You know what you're talking about. Second of all, it's, you make it clear that the wave function of a system is not the complete description of a system. A system of particles in Bohmian mechanics, each of the particles of the system are particles. They do have positions. Not just when you look, even if you don't look. They always have positions. You ask yourselves then, how should they move? The theory tells you how they move. And as I told you, that you can easily guess the theory if you have some mathematical strength, like being an intelligent high school student. You could guess what the theory is if you know Schrodinger's equation. So you'd have to be a really smart high school student. Once you've got the theory, you know what's, what's being said about the world. Particle, you've got a world of particles moving according to the equations of motion of the theory. Perfectly clear. Then the only question is, what is the connection between this theory and orthodox textbook quantum theory. How do its predictions differ from those of orthodox textbook quantum theory? What about all the extra stuff you have in orthodox quantum theory? Collapse of the wave function is something that happens. When you look at a quantum particle, its wave function collapses, according to textbook quantum theory. That doesn't seem to be the case. So, at least on the surface, it doesn't seem to be the case in Bohmian mechanics where all you have is a single evolution equation for the wave function, Schrodinger's equation, and then an evolution equation for the particles, for their positions. A fairly, as I said, an equation you could guess. In any case, when you analyze the theory, and you've got sharp mathematics in front of you, so it's clear what you have to analyze. When you analyze the theory, you find that all of textbook quantum mechanics comes out of it. Quantum, quantum observables as operators, collapse of the wave function, quantum probabilities, the whole kit and caboodle comes out as theorems from Bohmian mechanics. Which, in fact, is a far simpler theory than textbook quantum theory. Because Bohmian one, mechanics... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, one thing... Uh, that I've picked up on from what you're saying is a, a tension between realism and anti-realism and the foundations of quantum mechanics. But uh, 
I'd like to hold off on that for one second and go back to the quotation you read from Einstein. And I, you already mentioned that he abandoned his own pilot wave theory because it might have been, or because of non-locality, which as we know, uh, our, my, our listeners, I know, I mean, uh, know from the many discussions we've had about the EPR paper on the show. But I'm wondering what the other issues were with quantum mechanics, other than non-locality, that Einstein was so unhappy with that he's referencing in this quote. Is it the sort of indeterminate, fuzzy nature of the quantum formalism that you've just been discussing? Certainly, certainly the vagueness, the vagueness of it, the breaking the rules when you make measurements. Um, One of the things that really bothered Einstein is that you should have special rules when you make measurements. Einstein believed, as in fact most physicists do, that measurements are not are just interactions, pseudo kinds of interactions between systems. So why should they be governed by different rules? For Einstein, this was unacceptable. And one of the things that I I just mentioned that I took out of what you were saying is this tension between realism and anti-realism in the foundations of quantum mechanics. So pilot wave theory, as I understand it, is deterministic and there is a determinate sort of background behind the theory. There there are beables, to use uh, Bell's term, as opposed to just the observables of the Copenhagen interpretation. So why was it that Einstein, who was a realist, didn't like de Broglie's pilot wave theory? You mentioned that you, that he just might have been unsatisfied with de Broglie's reticence in answering certain questions, but well, were he, there other problems? Well, he wasn't exactly there? reticence. De Broglie gave very poor answers to the questions raised by um, Pauli in the Solvay conference. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that made a bad impression. Um, I, I don't, I, I can say only two things. Certainly the non-locality bothered Einstein. Number, that's number one. Of course it would bother him. Who wouldn't be bothered by it? That's why the Nobel Prize a year ago was basically given for. People, the experimentalists who did the Bell experiments and establishing that non-locality is here to stay. Quantum mechanics is a non-local theory. Now, that wasn't crystal clear at the time because the theory is so vague that it wasn't, it's not at all easy to even pin it down to say whether it's local or non-local. But that's what Bell did. Bell pinned it down and was able to establish that quantum mechanics despite its vagueness, nonetheless is rather conclusively non-local. Right. I was asking whether de Broglie's pilot wave theory at that time, everybody recognized to be non-local. No, they probably did not recognize it to be non-local, but Einstein might well have. Okay. Okay. That's the distinction that I was trying to get at. Okay. Interesting. But Einstein also was, was in search of something more. He wanted to derive quantum mechanics from a theory of the kind he likes, some kind of unified field theory of a more or less classical sort. 
he somehow hoped, and he hoped for this for the rest of his life, that quantum mechanics would emerge from an analysis of such a theory. He never succeeded. And he might have given up this program if he had realized that the quantum predictions demand non-locality. But he didn't know that because he died before Bell showed that. Hmm. And was pilot wave theory abandoned around this time because one, as you already mentioned, uh, de Broglie might not have been wholeheartedly behind it. And then Einstein, the, the, the realist uh, of all realists didn't accept it. Well, Einstein's not accepting it. it may or may not have had an effect, but Einstein had pretty strong views about quantum mechanics and his views were, unex were not accepted anyway. So it's not 100% clear that Einstein's acceptance would have made much difference. But I wouldn't, I don't know if, the, it would, if it's entirely appropriate to say the theory was abandoned because that might suggest that a lot of people believed it and then they abandoned it. I don't think, I think hardly anybody believed the theory. Maybe even de Broglie hardly believed it. He was looking for something like, something different, that theory, something called, he called the theory of the double solution, which was not his theory. So there were no, strong proponents of the theory in 1927. Even as de Broglie was proposing it, he was not a strong proponent of it. Einstein was not a strong proponent of it. He had his own theory, which he abandoned, and he wasn't inclined to accept de Broglie's alternative either. If he's giving up his own, he wasn't too happy with de Broglie either. So it was just, it was never, it never caught on. Not in, as far as I know, it didn't catch on at all until Bohm came along in 1951 or two. I guess it was 51. Sure, and I'm I'm ready to get to Bohm. I was going to ask. I mean, where does he enter the story? About 1951, after um, he finished his textbook on quantum theory which was really sort of the best presentation of the Copenhagen interpretation. He asked Einstein for his opinion on the matter. And Einstein said he wasn't at all happy with the book because, he, you know, Einstein was not at all happy with Copenhagen interpretation. And he... Um, Bohm accepted the criticisms of Einstein and realized he needed to do better. He gave up on what he had. He, he did the best he, go, he could in that 400 or so, 500 or so page book on quantum theory. He realized this is the best I can do with the Copenhagen, for the Copenhagen interpretation, but he realized, no, he nonetheless found it inadequate. He has to do something better. And it took him uh, a year or so, maybe even less, to come up with his hidden variable theory. At the instigation of Einstein. Mm -hmm. How did his version of pilot wave theory uh, improve upon or just differ from de Broglie's of 30 or so, 25 years earlier? It didn't really differ from it. It's what was, well, he, although at the time, the Bohm didn't realize he was just rediscovering de Broglie's theory. He had no idea. 
It was only later that it was pointed out to him. A year or so later, I guess. And um, the Broly, um, by the way, never really much liked. Both the Broly did not return to his theory after Bohm rediscovered it. But what Bohm did do, and which might have caused the Broly to return to it, but it didn't seem to help, Bohm really analyzed the theory and showed how the predictions of quantum theory are also the predictions of his theory. He showed how his theory is, is basically compatible with quantum theory, makes the same predictions. He was, in particular, Bohm was the first to analyze what happens in quantum measurements in his theory. And he showed how the usual issues in quantum measurement theory are resolved in his theory, and in such a way that the standard quantum mechanical probabilities for predictions of results of measurement emerge from an analysis of his theory. Is it because of all this further work he did on the pilot wave theory that it's now, I mean, more generally referred to as Bohmian mechanics than, say, uh, de Broglie-Bohm pilot wave theory? Or is it more of just a historical contingency that people had kind of forgotten that de Broglie did it first? Well, the name Bohmian mechanics was, I think, um, suggested by Dadlef Durr. And that's for two reasons. It's a kind of mechanics, just like quantum mechanics is, but it's not exactly quantum mechanics. It's a, a, a version of mechanics that Bohm first appreciated. By the way, Bohm didn't like calling his theory. Bohm did not like the name Bohmian mechanics because he didn't think of his theory as a mechanics. But of course, it's a version of quantum mechanics, so in that sense, it is a mechanics. It depends what you have, what connotations mechanics has for you. But if we're going to call quantum mechanics a mechanics, we can call the Bohmian mechanics a mechanics too. Um, so now I don't know what the most common terminology is. Pilot wave theory, Bohm mechanics, uh, the Broly-Bohm theory. The Brolian mechanics is a mouthful. And since the Broly himself, although he did discover the theory, didn't understand how it worked, didn't, didn't really advocate, quickly abandoned it, while Bohm spent some time defending it, it seems associating it with Bohm seems appropriate. Hmm. I, you've raised an, an interesting question for me. What, what does mechanics imply to some people like Bohm? Why would they not want to use that term? Or why would quantum mechanics not even seem mechanical? I guess Bohm had some new agey ideas about how things were working, the radical new ordering, whereas mechanics to him was too old-fashioned, I guess. Maybe mechanics conveyed to him the ideas of balls bouncing off each other. I'm not sure. I just know he felt very strongly that it should not be thought of as a mechanics. I I I would I wouldn't put too much weight on that. However, that may have been what Bohm thought. That, I certainly don't agree with that sentiment of Bohm. It's for me a mechanics is a kind of dynamics. You just mentioned that he had new agey ideas. That's not what I 
wanted to ask about, but what was it about Bohm's character, or maybe I have his political views in mind, that resulted in, or at least contributed to, his ideas not taking off? And I understand he had a very difficult academic career getting placement and he moved around a lot and that sociology played a big role in the lack of adoption of the theory rather than maybe just its physical merit since so many people really wanted a a realist picture of quantum mechanics a realist theory a realist quantum theory well you know it's a complicated story. Look, Bohmian mechanics is a simple theory, easy to understand. The history, however, and the problems about its acceptance, the whole history of quantum mechanics is not an easy story. It involves psychology, sociology, all kinds of peculiar twists and turns. Not at all easy to understand. Um, but if you have gone through a physics education and have been told repeatedly that anything like what Bohm is proposing has been utterly refuted by analysis, by experiment, by the greatest minds of the century, and you're inclined to trust your teachers, you're not going to be open to this theory. You're going to think something must be wrong with it which is exactly what I thought when I learned about the theory. At the end of the day, I realized there was nothing wrong with it, but that took me quite a while. I I myself felt great hostility to the theory because it sort of undercut all the romantic ideas I had been hearing about concerning quantum mechanics. All these novel ideas about measurement creating reality, non-commuting observables, all this deep mystery in reality. It was intriguing. And of course I took it seriously because everybody told me that's the way it was. And so I didn't want to hear about these these old fashioned ideas of Bohm, a return to classical modes of thought which have been utterly discredited by younger people more in tune with what physics demands. It's a natural thought. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it's not, the theory's non-acceptance. Hmm. I I can see where that class with Kripke might have come in. <laughs> where, yeah, yeah, where... absolutely, absolutely, right. Another class which had a big impact on me was at that uh, at more or less the same time was by given by Eugene Wigner on foundations of quantum mechanics. Oh, wow. And that was, though it wasn't as colorful as Kripke's lectures, Wigner's, but they were marvelous lectures nonetheless. Now, that was not a class in which Wigner advocated Bohmian mechanics, quite the contrary. But it was a class where it was made clear to me that most of what my physics teachers had told me was just plain wrong, because this great physicist, Wigner, was telling me about all the problems in quantum mechanics, which all my physics teacher had just swept under the rug. I had, so I certainly learned from that to take what my teachers tell me with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm.
uh, two things in response. You mentioned being attracted by ideas like measurement, creating reality. It's just interesting to me because that sort of idea, I guess I, I'd refer to it as anti-realism, maybe quite broadly. It's never appealed to me. Uh, well, so it's it's not, yeah, that... so it did appeal to me for a time until I tried to, you know, I was, look, I was just a stupid student. What do you want from me? I mean, all my teachers were telling me these things. And I, as I said, I was very trusting of them. They must know what they were talking about. When they, those of them who did so, when they told me all this positivistic garbage, I accepted it because I assumed they must know what they're talking about. It was only later that I realized that I should not be accepting all this stuff I'm hearing from my teachers. So until I became skeptical of my teachers, I, I was excited about these novel, all these novel ideas. I didn't really understand them, but I thought they must be true because I was being assured that they were true by my teachers. It was only later that I realized it was complete garbage and my teachers didn't know what they were talking about. They hadn't thought these things through at all. Mm -hmm. They were just repeating what they'd been told. Uh, the the other thing though that I had in mind, well, I actually didn't have this response in mind at all when I asked you that question. But what I thought you were going to talk about, which, and I might get the details wrong, I last read about this these sociological quirks in Lee Smolin's book, Einstein's Unfinished Revolution, maybe a couple of months ago. But I think Bohm, what I read was that Bohm had maybe communist sympathies and his advisor was Oppenheimer who's very very much on people's minds right now because of the movie and Oppenheimer didn't back him up and there was all this back and forth here and this is I mean part of what you have in mind I imagine when you say that the the history of quantum mechanics and its theories and interpretations is quite convoluted but my understanding was it was this communist sympathy that what was certainly a a big... not just communist sympathies he was kicked out of the country basically he was princeton let go of him um he was kicked out of the country because he i guess was held in contempt of congress for his refusing to name names at the mccarthy hearings or certain some of the at some hearings i don't think it was mccarthy but forget which hearings they were but in the early 50s um so there was, that was certainly a factor. But at that particular time, anybody who questioned orthodox quantum theory, Copenhagen, was likely to have his career ruined. So I can't say that was the, the sole contributing factor. It was certainly a factor. I mean, Murray Gelman did suggest that, um, that Bohm's ideas were... He came up with these ideas because he was a communist. Um, I somehow doubt that that's true. Um, Oppenheimer, in reaction to somebody, I think Max Dresden once asked Oppenheimer in the early 50s. He came across Bohm's paper. Couldn't find anything wrong with Bohm's 1951 or 2 paper. And he asked Oppenheimer about it. And Oppenheimer said, well... If we can't prove Bohm wrong, at least we can agree to ignore him. So there was, there were basically no sympathetic li listeners to him. Basically, people just wanted to dismiss Bohm. 
not just because of the uh, not just because of his communist connections or, or lack thereof, but his refusal to name names. Not just because of that, but because you know it was just considered poor physics to ask questions about the meaning of quantum mechanics. It was definitely considered very as career breaking to suggest that there's something hopelessly vague about Copenhagen quantum mechanics. That just was the situation at the time. And it remained that way for many years. And it's probably still somewhat that way. It's difficult to get jobs working at foundations of quantum mechanics and physics departments. Right, yeah, that's come up on the show as well. I mean, and with Tim, who I know is a good friend, Tim Maudlin, who I know is a good friend of yours. And it's one of the nice things about the John Bell Institute. And so the last historical question that I wanted to ask was what role, I mean, I just mentioned him actually, what role John Bell played in the development of Bohmian mechanics? He was its, first of all, he was the main advocate of Bohmian mechanics between, let's say, 1960 until his death in 19, around 1990. He was a primary advocate, almost the sole advocate. Well, there was Bohm advocating for it, but not with the eloquence and the clarity that Bell brought to the subject. Now, so there is that. There's also the fact that Bell established that quantum mechanics is non-local. In so doing, he did that by his Bell inequality argument. And the irony about that was that part of that argument involves proving that the EPR argument from 1935 that you mentioned, you've talked about various times, that EPR argument was an argument to the effect that the wave function does not provide a complete description of a physical system. There has to be more than wave function. Bell showed that that argument is definitely wrong. Not that the conclusion is wrong, but the argument is flawed. Because the argument assumed locality, the EPR argument. And it led, and the assumption of locality in that EPR argument led in the Bohm version of the EPR analysis with involving spin and not particles, not, not position and momentum, but the spin of two particles. The Bohm version of that argument under the analysis of Bell, Bell showed that that version of the argument showed that the EPR argument in this version lead, led to conclusions about incompleteness of quantum mechanics, the existence of pre-existing values for spin components, which were incompatible with the predictions of quantum mechanics and incompatible, in fact, with experiment. So Bell showed that, in fact, the, the crucial assumption in the EPR argument, locality, has to be given up if the predictions of quantum mechanics confirmed by experiment hold. That was or should have been the main objection to Bohmian mechanics, that it was non-local. Bell, having shown that non-locality is indispensable, it's an intrinsic feature of quantum mechanics, 
removes the crucial objection to Bohmian mechanics. They would, in fact, it converts the objection to a merit. After all, if Bohmian mechanics were local, it would have to be wrong. And, Bohm was in fa and Bell was, in fact, led to his Bell inequality in all that famous work by thinking about Bohmian mechanics. Bell asked the question when he was in his paper, in a paper in the early 60s on hidden variable theories. He looked at Bohm's particular hidden variable theories, saw that it, while it worked, but may, it yielded the predictions of quantum mechanics, he noticed that it had the, what he called the grossly non-local features. And Bell said, well, Bell, he, Bell said that while Bohm, he said, was well aware of, of these features, nobody has done a careful, nobody has done an analysis of whether it's possible to do better than Bohm and come up with a hidden variable theory which does not have these non-local features. That's what Bell, that was the question Bell addressed. Whether or not he he tried to see whether it would be possible to come up with a have a hidden variable theory which was lo completely local, and Bell proved that was impossible, and he proved more than that. Not only would must any hidden variable version of quantum mechanics be non-local, he proved that any clear serious version of quantum mechanics must be non-local. Well, that's great. This has all been great. And I i mean, now's the time, though, to shift gears away from the history, since I think we've established a lot of the, the crucial figures and points towards some more conceptual issues, physically and philosophically. And just as an aside, maybe before we get started, why is Bohmian mechanics also known as the causal quantum theory program? Well, yeah, that's. I think that's also due to Bohm. I guess Bohm changed his mind about that. By the way, and the Bohm in the late fifties was calling it this causal interpretation. The reason for that's pretty clear. Causal sort of means deterministic. So it was only because it was deterministic. Bohm later realized that determinism was not the crucial innovation. It's true that you end up with a deterministic theory for non-relativistic quantum mechanics, but it wouldn't be so terrible if it were not deterministic. That wasn't what was important. Although, you know, the usual folklore about quantum mechanics, the folklore about Einstein's dis disapproval of quantum mechanics, namely that he just couldn't, couldn't accept that God played dice, he couldn't accept the randomness. This was not Einstein's real problem. Einstein's real problem was the, was its vagueness, was was its anti-realistic realistic stuff, and was its apparent incompleteness, was the special role of measurement and observation. These were the difficulties. In a short, in, in short, it was the measurement problem of quantum mechanics. How do measurements ending up, end up having results in quantum mechanics without invoking a special rule for collapse of the wave function, which is incompatible with with the Schrodinger's equation? That was I, the, the randomness was not the key problem. The lack of ontological clarity was the key problem for Einstein. Well, there are, I mean, two sort of broad directions that I I wanted to go in here, and the first, which is I think what we've just been discussing, is how quantum phenomena, with at least 
apparent indeterminacy or spooky qualities arise from a particle theory. And and then the second, and I mean, not unrelated, is how Bohmian mechanics manages to remain realist when realism does seem at least facially in tension with some quantum phenomena like uncertainty or non-locality. How does Bohmian mechanics make sense of some of these particular problems, uh, at least intuitive problems in quantum mechanics? So how does Bohmian mechanics deal with or explain the phenomenon of entanglement, for instance? Well, um, you know that Bohmian mechanics, I think I mentioned this without using the word entanglement, emerged. No, that's what I mean. And I saying this, I, I said this, said it wrong. The, our detailed understanding of entanglement via Bell emerged from an analysis of Bohmian mechanics. Bohmian, Bell first noticed the power of quantum entanglement by studying Bohmian mechanics, where it's made very explicit. What, why is there entanglement in quantum mechanics? Because it involves, entanglement is in the nature of the wave function. Either you could say the tensor product structure, and that's not good for your audience because they don't know what a tensor product structure is. But the wave function is a kind of highly high-level abstract object. It's not a, it's not a, it's it's not a function on physical space at all. It doesn't assign values to points on physical space. It's a much more elaborate, abstract notion. It assigns values to configurations of points, possibly distant points on physical space. Mathematically, in the simplest case, so for, for a many-particle system, this crucial object in quantum mechanics, the only object in quantum mechanics that almost all versions of quantum mechanics take seriously, is the wave function, which is a function for a many-particle system on the space of possible configurations of that many-particle system, the space of all the possible positions of all the particles. That's not physical space. That is a non-local kind of object. A theory which involves that kind of thing, a wave function, in a fundamental way, you would expect to be a non-local theory. That's where entanglement comes from. And the wave function plays a central role in Bohmian mechanics, just as it does in orthodox quantum theory. The difference, it has to play a central role in physical behavior, because otherwise the wave function would not be irrelevant, would not be relevant to physics. In orthodox quantum theory, the relevance of the wave function to physical behavior is on the macroscopic level of results of experiments. The quantum rules tell involve the wave function and give you formulas in terms of the wave function for what will happen in various experiments. On the, that's on the macroscopic level. In Bohmian mechanics, the connection with physical behavior is in the motion of the particles itself, themselves. The wave function in Bohmian mechanics, the fundamental role of the wave function in Bohmian mechanics is to guide the particles, not to guide directly measuring apparatuses, but to guide the particles which are construct which you which out of which measurement apparatuses are built. So the role of the wave function in Bohmian mechanics is as it should be on the microscopic level, whereas the role of the wave function in orthodox quantum theory seems to be on the macroscopic level, which is an odd place to put it. 
But entanglement arises from just the structure of the wave function. And Bowie mechanics simply, simply brings that out in a clearer way. Hmm. And then how does Heisenberg's uncertainty principle get manufactured, or how does it arise in Bohmian mechanics? Well, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is simply an, one instance of quantum probability. It relates the probability distribution, the quantum probability distribution for position to the quantum probability distribution for momentum. If you have a very narrow probability, quantum probability distribution for the position of a particle, you almost know the position, let's say, then you have a very wide probability distribution for the momentum of the particle. You have little idea what the momentum is. And the, and the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is a sharp inequality expressing this fact. But it's simply a, it's simply a special case of the usual quantum probabilities. Now, when you analyze Bohmian mechanics, you find, well, let me say it like this, a very natural question if you're, if you're dealing with Bohmian mechanics is really the question you just suggested, but more general question than the one you just suggested, namely, where do quantum probabilities come from in a theory such as Bohmian mechanics, which is fundamentally deterministic and nothing is vague. Particles are where they are. There's a wave function that particles are moving in a deterministic manner according to what the, how the wave function tells them they should move, according to simple equations of motion involving the wave function. Where is there room for probability in such a theory? So that's a natural question, right? And anybody who first learns about Bohmian mechanics should be bothered by that question. I know I was. And that's why I was attracted to stochastic mechanics. Because it seemed to me hard to understand how Bohm's deterministic theory could accommodate quantum randomness. Whereas if I have a stochastic theory, diffusion process, randomness is built in. So if randomness is built in, it sort of seems not implausible that maybe quantum randomness could come out. It was only later that I realized I was totally unnecessary and quantum randomness emerges from an analysis of Bohmian mechanics, surprisingly. In fact, there's no example that I know of in which fundamental randomness, in a sense fundamental randomness, emerges from a theory which in such a crystal clear way, a theory which is fundamentally deterministic and nothing is really random. Turns out that in a Bohmian universe, there's an appearance of inescapable randomness emerges. You can't, now, why should that be? The short of it is that an appearance of randomness, why should randomness appear at all? Because we don't know everything. Things seem random because we don't know everything. Well, the result of an experiment wouldn't be random if we knew the result beforehand. But to know the result beforehand, we have to know the, all the detailed initial conditions, the positions of all the particles. It turns out that in Bohmian mechanics, that knowledge is not available. That knowledge is not available, not as an axiom of the theory. The theory doesn't say you can't know this stuff. Decent. A decent physical theory should not have axioms about well, well, what you can or can't know. Shouldn't refer to knowledge or observation. But an analysis of the theory, Bohmian mechanics, shows that 
this knowledge, this, this inf detailed information about the configuration, positions of all the particles, must be inaccessible. That you can't know more about the position of a particle than its wave function would allow you to know. You just can't know more. That's a theory of Boeing mechanics. And, um, but you know that in classical mechanics, many classical systems are conveniently described using randomness. Statistical, mecha statistical mechanics were dealing classical statistical mechanics. One is dealing with a deterministic classical evolution, and yet one finds it very convenient to describe things involving randomness. Maxwell's distribution for the velocity of a particle in a gas. So randomness often can emerge in a natural way from an analysis of a deterministic motion. And in classical mechanics, it would seem that that randomness is not is is avoidable. You could know more, perhaps. You could come. You could make the make the randomness less and less by obtaining more and more information. But it's a theorem of Bohmian mechanics that you can't do that. The structure of Bohmian mechanics is such that this is impossible. You can never know enough to know the position of a particle beyond its wave function. So the randomness and probabilities that arise in Bohmian mechanics are epistemic rather than at root physical, maybe in the same way that restricting ourselves to a classical picture of the world. Uh, if we flip a coin and we know all of the initial conditions, uh, we know whether it's going to land heads up or heads down. But because we don't have access to these every time we flip a coin, it's subjectively uh, random whether or not it's going to land heads or tails. But then there's a theory, a theorem of Bohmian mechanics that says that we just can't ever know these initial That's conditions. exactly right. And it is epistemic. It's not metaphysical, it's not intrinsic, it's not fundamental, and yet it's inescapable. That's the theorem of Bohmian mechanics. And shifting slightly, I mean, I, I guess I just, I, I brought, uh, I, well, you mentioned statistical mechanics, and I just mentioned this classical picture of, a, of flipping a coin, but is there a simple story for how the wave-particle duality of Bohmian mechanics can still result in the classical picture of the world we see at the macroscopic level, because the quantum world and our our macroscopic world are quite different uh, creatures. Well, the basic problem on a conceptual level with understanding how the classical world with definite things at definite positions moving in a deterministic way can emerge from quantum mechanics is because the basic problem arises because quantum mechanics doesn't even have the ontological resources to, to permit this to evolve. All you have is wave function there, and the wave function spread out. So it's fair. It's the, the game is very unclear how it's supposed, how a classical world is supposed to come out. It's almost a case of garbage in, garbage out. In Bohmian mechanics, what you've got is particles moving in a certain way. It's not the classical way. But if you have particles moving in a certain way, and then you have you therefore have systems of particles moving in a certain way, because if you have you know all the particles that you're moving, you know how composite systems of particles like baseballs move. 
And it's not at least, it seems conceptually quite possible that the kind of motion you're going to get in certain limits will be the classical motion. And that's exactly what happens in moving mechanics. Now, you often hear it said, and this is not quite an adequate story, but it's almost adequate, that the difference between the kind of between classical motion and the motion you have in Bohmian mechanics is due to the existence of a, something called the quantum potential. I don't like the quantum potential, but in any case, it's still a true statement. And in the classical limit, the quantum, the quantum potential can be ignored. Classical limit of Bohmian mechanics, the quantum potential can be ignored, you just get classical equations. That's a bit simplistic, but it's a, it's a useful way to think, at least in a, at a first pass. What does much of the current work on, or where does, or okay, what does much of the, the current work on Bohmian mechanics uh, consist in these days? Well, extensions of Bohmian mechanics to quantum field theory. And Bohmian mechanics is well-developed only for non-relativistic quantum mechanics. There it's crystal clear. What about quantum field theory, which we know is a more fundamental theory than non-relativistic quantum mechanics? There, there are various options, but you know quantum field theory is an extremely difficult subject. It, even on the orthodox quantum field theory, it doesn't have the mathematical clarity that non-relativistic quantum mechanics has. Um, and so, you know, it's so once you come to quantum field theory, it's not clear what you should do, what you should say, what the appropriate ontology is. It's not as if it's not there aren't many options. It's just you don't know what the best option is. Should it be a particle ontology, a field ontology? What kind of ontology? Not clear. Various options. No agreement, I would say. There's also the general issue of. Can Bohmian mechanics be made relativistic? Which is the very form of Bohmian mechanics for the non-relativistic non quantum mechanics, there's some sense in which it's intrinsically non-relativistic. Its structure is very non-relativistic. Why is that? Because the configuration of a system of particles plays a fundamental role. And what is the configuration of a system of particles? It's the positions of all the particles at a given time. So absolute simultaneity seems to play an important role. If you don't have absolute simultaneity, what do you mean by the, by the configuration of a system of particles? So there is the issue of how to make the theory relativistic. And part and, part and parcel of that question is what does it even mean for a theory to be relativistic? At, at first glance, you might think you know what that means, but when you think about it harder, it's not at all easy to say exactly what should be meant by, have, by a theory being relativistic. Then there are extensions to quantum gravity. And there it's not even clear what the, not, what the orthodox theory is, but there's still some Bohmian ideas which are, which are quite helpful in the subject. The guy most strongly working on that subject nowadays, I think, is Ward Struyve, S-T-R-U-Y-V-E. Um, and I've been working off and on with Nino Zaini on the issue of 
geometrodynamics, both classical geometrodynamics, non-quantum, and then a Bohmian version of geometrodynamics. And trying to understand the relationship with geo geometrodynamics, which is not a, does not have a totally relativistic flavor and relativity theory, including general relativity. These, these are very hard questions. Whereas non-relativistic quantum mechanics is a very simple theory. All the other things are very hard. Now, there's another, another philosophical question, which I think is very relevant to understanding quantum mechanics and Bohmian mechanics in particular, namely the status of the wave function. It's a strange kind of object to have in a physical theory. What's its status? Is it um, sort of a, a new kind of physical reality? Or does it have a different status, some sort of concrete physical reality? There's disagreement on that. Or a related question. Why, even if you say, I understand mathematically and dynamically what's going on in Bohmian mechanics, where you have particles moving around in a way guided by a wave function, evolving according to Schrodinger's equation, why should nature be governed by such a strange theory, which has this wave function? Why should the wave function play a role in the dynamics of particles? Where did that come from? One could hope to understand this much better, to have a clear answer of why a theory of such a form is in some sense inevitable, an inevitable consequence of some natural considerations of which I'm not aware what they are. So there are many, many questions one could ask. Hmm. Drilling in for a moment on the relationship between Bohmian mechanics and quantum gravity, I recently spoke with Faye Dowker about causal set theory, and she mentioned that it's a fundamentally quantum theory, and it is only really compatible, though, with one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics, and that's the sum over paths approach. And I'm wondering if Bohmian mechanics is only compatible with certain approaches to quantum gravity. Like, for instance, is it compatible with uh, string theory, which I means the, the current dominant approach? See, I don't see any reason why it should not be compatible with it. Of course, string theory has its own problems. The issue, what, what does it mean to be compatible with it? Sets raises a question, what do you mean by, what should one be, mean by a Bohmian version of any particular um, quantum theory? What should, be, what should be met by a Bohmian version of that theory? It doesn't mean that the fundamental ontology is a particle ontology, as I emphasized. What it means, it means several things. And of course, this different people might have different things in mind. Here's what it means to me. Number one, the theory should involve a wave function. Otherwise, it's not a quantum theory. Number two, the wave function is not the fundamental ontology of a theory. It's part of the theory, but it's not the fundamental ontology. There's, a, there's something beyond the wave function. 
what I what we I've tended to call the primitive ontology of the theory, given by what are called local beables, things at definite locations in space, changing with time. Things, in other words, a decoration of space time. What that decoration of space time is, it depends on the details of the theory. But there should be a decoration of space time whose structure is governed in a law-like manner by the wave function. And, it, and the predictions of the theory should be quantum predictions given by the usual quantum rules, the results of experiments. So something like that is what I would call a Bohmian version. Now that's pretty broad. It just, it, it just says you should just take seriously there's something beyond the wave function, basically. That's and that something beyond the wave function is what is, is gives the wave function something to do on the microscopic level. I think you should well appreciate that all kinds of theories are going to be should be compatible with that. But here's the kind of thing which is not going to be compatible with that. A theory in which you say what is fundamental are non-commuting observables as fundamental ontological entities. That I find incoherent. I don't know what it means for a, a, an observable, a genuine observable, to be a non-commuting uh, to be non-commuting. I don't know what it means for. I know what matter what it means for mathematical objects to commute or not commute, and I can well imagine that non-commuting mathematical objects play a role in a theory. But if you're going to tell me they're the observables, you're going to have to tell me what you mean by that. In what sense are they related to things in the physical world? In what sense are they related to measurement and observation? Be precise. And if you're if you end up if you're precise about that, you'll find that the fact that the, these objects, the non-commuting objects, were not genuine observables. So if you're telling me something, what's fundamental is in the theory is non-commutativity of the fundamental objects of the fundamental objects in which physics is about, I would say that's probably an incoherent theory. That's not a Bohmian theory. Well, <clears throat> the last things that I wanted to make sure that we touched on were some criticisms of Bohmian mechanics, and you didn't really do this but the way Bohmian mechanics is often presented it, by its proponents is to make it seem kind of like a a dream come true in that it's a, a realist deterministic theory of quantum mechanics in which at the expense maybe of adding some sort of mysterious kind of wave to our ontology we get to preserve point particles but I have the impression that this still remains a minority view among physicists and philosophers. And well, I mean, it, say it certainly again, say must. Say again that criticism. What's the criticism? That we have to add a mysterious kind of waves to our ontology. Well, that's, that's so, yes, that you often read that. You often hear that said. I guess it's complete nonsense. You don't, that's exactly what you don't add. Because that mystic, what you're calling, what these critics call this mysterious kind of wave, that's just the wave function. The psi function, which is a central ingredient in all versions of quantum mechanics, that's not what's added by Bohm. 
what I have read, it's not so much that the wave itself is added, but that because the wave doesn't collapse, it's kind of just like a ghost wave that never stops. It just keeps going. And there there are ghost waves all over the place that are these potential places that uh, particles could have been. So there's a a ghost wave of me in, I don't know, Chicago right now, or many. Well, is that a mathematical objection or a metaphysical one? I think it's, I, I'm not even sure if it's an objection, but it just, it, if that, if I, assuming that I sort of represented this, I guess it is an objection or a qualm rather, assuming I, I represented this qualm faithfully, it just is another thing that goes against our intuitive understanding of the world and it doesn't really seem. But you see, this question is related to the deeper question that I raised before. What is the status of the wave function? Granted, it's a strange kind of thing. It's a novel thing. But this thing, and let's say it involves ghost waves, there's a sense in which that's true in orthodox quantum theory too, right? Only mechanics doesn't get rid of the wave function. On the other hand, you might say, oh, but in orthodox quantum theory, the wave function collapses. In Bohmian mechanics, it's a theorem that the wave function of a system does collapse. You can prove that, despite the fact that the Schrodinger's equation with no collapse is a fundamental equation of theory. You can still prove that the wave function of a system, that is your wave function, for example, does collapse. Uh, at the same time, let me ask it the following question. Suppose I, let's say, let's agree that Bohmian mechanics works. It yields all the quantum mechanical predictions. So this objection that is being raised by about ghost waves. It's not saying that theory doesn't work. It's just that you find it strange that there's these ghost waves. Okay. Suppose I take my theory, which involves ghost waves, and complicate Schrodinger's equation to make so that the wave function does collapse. They just make it more complicated. Then I won't have ghost waves anymore. Should I really prefer this more complicated theory? I don't think so. I wouldn't prefer it. I'll take the simpler mathematical theory. If it has features you don't like, but it's simpler that way, let's say that's a good argument for, the, for why we have the features you don't like. The simpler theory has those features. Don't complicate things to, to, to satisfy your prejudices. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I'm totally in agreement with you over this point, but I would... I suppose that as long as a theory had these very intu unintuitive, for me at least, implications, I would be tempted to sort of always be hold out, holding out or searching for something even simpler that didn't have these. Exactly. It's natural to search for something simpler. But look at the sociological situation. People accepted something not just simpler, something far more complicated and far more incoherent. They didn't react this way. They accepted orthodox quantum theory, which has far weirder features, far worse, because it's incoherent, totally ambiguous. But people didn't say, oh, we have to do better. They criticized Einstein for saying we have to do better. 
But by the way, this feature, this, this feature, I agree with this objection about the ghost waves in the sense in the following sense. I think one should ask why there should be a wave function in the theory. And I, and I think the answer to that, though much work has to be done, is that the wave function is really more should be thought of as a level on the level of the law of motion rather than as a new physical object. So it's not a ghost wave at all. It's not a new thing of new kind of thing that we have in the world, a ghost wave. It's rather we have a, a, new, a kind of law which seems to suggest that there's these ghost waves, but it's just a certain kind of law of motion. Now, why we should have that law of motion is a fundamental question. Hmm. Well, then let me uh, pose this final question that I was getting toward, and that is just why do you think, given that Bohmian mechanics is so much less vague than the Copenhagen interpretation. It is realist. It is deterministic. What are some of the main reasons that it remains a minority view? Are they all sociological or are there good philosophical and physical objections? I'm not aware of any good, really good objections. If you actually consider the alternative, the alternatives are... I think the main. I think the main. The main for me. The main thing is that very hardly anybody understands the theory because they don't want to look into it because they already believe it can't really work. So why spend the time trying to understand something which you're sort of convinced to begin with can't really do the job? I think if people really understood how simple the theory is, it's much simpler than textbook quantum theory. How simple it is, and how um, completely it explains all quantum phenomena and how well it explains quantum randomness and all of the mysteries of quantum mechanics, collapse of the wave function, the fact that obtaining information destroys the, in a two-slit experiment destroys the interference pattern. It explains the fact why we think there's a fundamental role for measurement and observation in quantum mechanics. That becomes crystal clear and Bohmian mechanics. If people appreciated all that it, uh, the, the extent, the complete extent to which it explains the phenomenon of orthodox quantum theory and all of the textbook rules, it would be much more widely accepted. But you're not going to get people to have that appreciation unless they study the theory. And how are they going and, and they would have to be very lucky to to end up in a situation where they're studying the theory because most of their teachers are going to discourage them from studying it. Most of their colleagues will discourage them from studying it. Well, Shelley, I mean, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.